Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Processed, you know, unhealthy foods laden with sugars and vegetable oils are too cheap. And appropriate government response should be to actually really tax these foods quite high and use that money to subsidize and make healthy food and natural foods. We're talking, you know, things that would come straight from the farm. So vegetables, meat and fish and dairy products, that's natural food. You don't really need a supermarket. So subsidize these foods, but also like actually pour that money from the taxes into an education campaign, get people cooking, you know. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. On the show, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Andrew Jenkinson, a consultant surgeon with a specialist interest in advanced laparoscopic surgery who treats bariatric patients. He's also part of an expert team developing advances in GI surgery at University College Hospital London and author of the book, Why We Eat Too Much. Now, obesity is a particular problem for the UK, having the sixth highest prevalence of obesity and where 26% of adults are classified as obese and it disproportionately affects both adults and children in lower socioeconomic groups. Because of the prevalence and the dire comorbidities associated with this condition, there is a strong public health incentive to find effective treatments and preventative measures. Now, you might have heard on the radio or TV, the war on obesity or the obesity challenge. But the debate about obesity is shrouded with oversimplification, a lack of appreciation of the foundations and the history of how we got here, as well as a lack of empathy for sufferers of this disease. And I say disease with a lot of purpose, as you'll find out in the in the podcast. On the other hand, people whose interests are to protect the mental health of those who suffer with being overweight and whilst their intentions may be genuine, fail to appreciate that there is a need to recognize a problem which needs treatment. Now, this episode isn't geared toward fat shaming or pointing the finger at obese people as, as 
commonly occurs in the media. In the same way, previous podcast episodes about eating for migraines, PCOS, or eating for IBD aren't geared towards pointing the finger at those people for having those conditions. This is for general information purposes only and to help everyone, and I mean everyone, understand the mechanisms behind why some people struggle with weight versus others and to cease the oversimplification of calories in versus calories out and to recognize the potential interventions before we have to entertain drastic measures such as bariatric surgery, something that Dr. Andrew is a specialist in. On the show today, we talk about how patient stories encouraged Andrew to dig deeper into the mechanisms behind obesity and actually challenge his own prejudices. We talk about prejudice in the NHS uh, against obese people, uh, why obesity is better defined as a disease and what that means for treatment, the interplay of genes, hormones, neurotransmitters in the likelihood of uh, obesity and your propensity towards the disease, basal metabolic rate and weight set point uh, and how that is the challenge to overcome, leptin resistance, insulin, cortisol and mitochondrial function and obesity, why low calorie diets work and then don't work, uh, and the impact of COVID on his job, and particularly, uh, in particular for bariatric patients, poverty, the food environment, and Andrew's tips for weight loss. Now, I'd highly encourage you to check out the book, Why We Eat Too Much, which is available now. Check out the end of the podcast for Andrew's tips. And don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter at thedoctorskitchen.com. I really hope you find this podcast episode enjoyable, informational, and there is a, a, a lot of misinformation out there um, from both sides and that hopefully this will rectify or put some effort into rectifying uh, that situation and um, and just add some more clarity without too much more chatter this is my podcast conversation with dr andrew jenkinson I was going to ask you how how the last three months have have been for you in terms of your clinical work and um, how how you've been affected. It sort of came on quite suddenly, didn't it? That um, the, the, the 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 number of people affected suddenly escalated, and we had this sort of uh, first social distancing advice, and then a sudden sort of lockdown, and everything shut. Um, and mm. in the hospital, obviously our elective surgery, so the operations on, you know, obese people and, you know, hernias and whatever, uh, were totally shut down because it was too unsafe for these people to come into hospital. Because hospital were actually a bit of a breeding ground for COVID cross-infection. Um, so it's been, from that point of view, it was actually quite um, quiet. Uh, lots of my clinics turned into telephone clinics. And we just had the odd little bit of on-call uh, general surgical emergencies. And then, obviously, you know, a bit of uh, manual work in intensive care now and again when we were when we were required, right at the height of the crisis. The UCH had, you know, intensive care, which is actually one of the biggest intensive cares in, in the UK. Uh, I think 30 beds, 35 beds was full um, with extended... Uh, uh, intensive care as well so yeah it was it was different um and a sort of a reflective time as well i think um because mm. the times that we weren't working um and we were at home it was yeah just much more reflective and um 
your your day job, just for those who don't know, um, it's bariatric surgery. And I, I mentioned that to a non-medical colleague of mine and they, they looked at me quite funny. So I don't think it's like a well-accepted term, um, but maybe you could uh, uh, talk a bit about how you got into this type of surgery. And you- So I'm one of these surgeons who does operations to help really obese people. So we're talking sort of 20 stone or you know 120 kilograms and upwards really. So people who have suffered severely with their weight. And as you know, a lot of these people have other conditions such as diabetes, blood pressure, high cholesterol, and sleep apnea. So my job, most of my job is to help these patients by, by doing operations to you know, reset their weight so that they become from 20 stone, they go down to 11 or 12 stone. And the operations are basically designed to either remove part of the stomach or bypass part of the stomach. So it sort of sounds pretty drastic, but we got quite good at it and it's keyhole surgery. So no big cuts, um, takes about an hour, hour and a half. And people, because there's no big cut in the abdomen, people go home the next day and just take a week off work. And it's actually, so it's relatively safe, pretty safe, but really, really highly effective. So it's becoming much more popular. Um, now the, the sort of controversy is that a lot of people don't really understand obesity and how it is a real trap and a real mm-hmm. real disease caused by these sort of uh, breakdown of our hormones, which I'll explain later. Um, and a lot of people, even a lot of my colleagues think, you know, why don't we just you know, scrap bariatric surgery and force people you know, onto a boot mm-hmm. camp or whatever? Um, but they have a profound misunderstanding, I think, of weight regulation, which actually when I first you know, went into the field probably had as well. That's really interesting that when you went into the field, you feel like you had a, a misunderstanding of the mechanisms behind obesity. I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit more to that effect, actually, about a why you went into bariatric surgery initially and and what you learned along your journey as well. So I think you'd probably agree, Rupi, that you know when we were at medical school, uh, I don't know where you went to. I went to Southampton. I was at Imperial, around the corner. So we so so we sort of didn't really receive a great deal of training about weight regulation, uh, and obviously you're you're at medical school a little bit uh, a little bit later than me. So I was there in the you know eighties and nineties, and at the time there wasn't. This was just right at the start of the obesity you know, crisis, just starting to come, uh, but it wasn't until you know. Um, late 90s, 2000s, and then more recently that we got a third of people obese. So we didn't have, we had 10% of the population were obese when I was at medical school. So it wasn't like a massive problem. It has become now. So this condition that, you know, causes early death, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, and has become a, you know, a condition that affects a third of our patients, all of our patients, wasn't taught in medical school. We were, we, I think we probably had like an hour or two hours in medical school, a lecture on mm. uh, calorie balance. Um, but calorie balance is massively too simplified. Um, so when I went into bariatric surgery uh, from other, you know, uh, doing cancer and, you know, hernias and gallbladder and uh, general surgery, I got a job with a colleague who I trained with before and I could do gastric surgery. So I got this job as a consultant bariatric surgeon and my waiting room was full of, massively obese people. And uh, I certainly had some prejudice at first. It was sort of a little bit like most mm. people would be now, like, well, can't you just get some self-control? Um, surely, 
if you just ate a little bit less and did a little bit more activity until your weight stabilized and then just do a little bit more and it will start to come down and the problem's gone away. That was my sort of feelings. Why, why would you want such drastic surgery? Is your character, you know, mm. so bad? Is your willpower so bad that you can't do something simple? And that's really how most people think. Um, many, many people think because we have this sort of limited and simplified understanding of obesity and weight regulation. But my patients sort of told me different. So we're talking, you know, I've seen hundreds of patients in my 15 years as a bariatric surgery, and they all sit down in front of you and they're quite often tearful and they tell you their years and years of dietary failure. And they all have really, really, really similar stories. And obviously they're not colluding, but they have the same story. So the stories are that yes, they can lose weight on a diet. They can lose, you know, a stone, a stone and a half, two stone, like 10, 15 kilograms. Um, but then they feel profoundly fatigued and tired as their metabolism decreases. And they have this rebound, you know, voracious, terrible appetite, almost like a thirst. So they'll find that a couple of, a, a few weeks or a couple of months into a diet after they've lost some weight, so the weight will go down and then it plateaus despite them complying with the diet. Um, they'll go to their GP, their GP will say, well, you're obviously not complying with the diet anymore because you're not losing weight. Uh, and then they, you know, become disheartened, go back onto normal eating and always will put all the weight back on. And the story is they always say they put a little bit more on as well as a sort of insulation, uh, you know, a evolutionary protective mechanism against future perceived famines by the, by the body. So this sort of made me think, well, you know, how can something so simple actually be so difficult? Why would these people want such drastic surgery? Um, uh, so I went away and just studied, you know, the whole area of metabolism and appetite. Metabolism was, you know, the, the, the real eye opener. Um, so I'm sure you know about basal metabolic rate. So this is the amount of energy that we use before we move basically so it's non-movement mm. energy so you can lay down all day and your basal metab metabolic rate is the amount of energy you burn just by not moving so heating your body chemical reactions breathing heartbeat and as you know that takes up actually 70 percent of our energy expenditure is basal metabolism and it's not under our control it's not you know we can't increase it by going to the to the gym particularly um, and it's massively variable between individuals of the same size. So as you will have learned in medical school, we can sort of estimate someone's basal metabolism by this complicated equation, pulling in your age, your sex, and your, your fat-free mass, the amount of muscle you have. And if we sort of compare people of the same sort of size and age, they should have um, similar metabolisms. But actually, if you look at the research, um, and if you look at 10 people who have the same age and, and height and, and weight and, and sex, there is a difference between the highest and the lowest metabolizers, the highest and lowest 5% of 700 kilocalories a day. So this is massive in, inter-individual variability in our not controllable metabolism. I just want to double click on that for a second, actually, for the listeners, because I think that what you've just said there is, is is pretty stark. Out of a collection of people with the same aesthetic, if you like, or the same weight, their basal metabolic rate, which is responsible for a huge amount of you know weight regulation, it can be a, a difference of how much do you say seven hundred. 
700 kilocalories. So if you take 10 people, just to make it sort of mm. you know, visually uh, easy for people, if you take a group of 10 people who look the same, so t- maybe 10 people who look like you uh, and the same ha- height and, and uh, muscle mass, um, and you look at their actual metabolic rates, the actual amount of energy they're burning mm. seamlessly, you know, without conscious effort, and you look at the lowest metabolizer to the highest metabolizer, the difference in between the lowest and the highest of those 10 people will be about 700 kilocalories, which is the same as three course meal, a massive, you know, uh, burger and Coke and fries or a 10K run. So you've got one person who's probably mm. struggling and going mm. for that 10K run and the other person who's, yeah, it's easy, you know, what are you, what's your problem, you know? Um, so, and this is why we see so many slim people who, you know, eat terrible, you know, they have a naturally high metabolic rate. And actually a lot of people who suffer with obesity do try a lot, you know, and they don't overeat. I've got many patients who've dieted all, the, all their lives and if they go above 1,200 kilocalories, they'll start wow. putting weight on. So our whole concept of suddenly calories in, calories out is the ultimate equation, but it's actually a lot more um, complicated in that the calories out, the amount we burn, isn't just how busy we are at work or how long we go to the gym. It's much more important, the basal metabolism, which is not really controllable. You mentioned something earlier there that I just wanted to pick up on as well, um, obesity being a disease. Um, and I think this is, uh, it's, it's a hot topic uh, across the field about whether we can regard obesity as a disease or not. I, I wonder if we could just uh, talk about what constitutes the disease versus obesity being a symptom, perhaps of what, traditionally might be thought of as poor self-control or a behavioral issue? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think a disease is something that will cause, um, you know, symptoms um, and early early death for for, for people. It's a condition that will cause, you know, early death. Whether it's a... uh, Know, a self-administered disease or something that you can't control, um, such as, you know, you may say people who have lung cancer, some of them smoke and some of them don't, but they still have lung cancer. Um, with obesity, we know that it is a um, abnormal condition caused by this, this condition, this, um, this problem with the negative feedback loop in our weight regulation uh, to do with leptin. So I'm sure you sort of heard in that, that that one lecture you had at medical school on weight regulation, a little bit about leptin. So leptin is this controlling hormone. It's like the master weight controller. Uh, and it is a, a hormone that actually is made by fat cells, goes into your bloodstream, and it's, it's picked up, the amount of leptin in your bloodstream is picked up by your hypothalamus, which is a little pea-sized gland within the middle of your brain uh, which controls has you know the ultimate control of your of your weight whether you're going to be fat or thin or normal weight. So leptin is look so the hypothalamus the weight control center in your brain is looking for leptin and it's looking this is a signal from the body of how much weight you have. Uh, so the more fat you have the more leptin is produced into your blood and the hypothalamus just has this guide. Um, and it's a little bit like. Um, you know, a gas tank or a petrol tank on your, on your car, you know, you know how much fuel you've got in the system. So that's how leptin works. It's, it's almost like a gas tank. Now, as your weight increases and you, you develop obesity, 
the leptin signal keeps mm. on going up in your blood, but it doesn't get read by the hypothalamus. It's been blocked by a couple of factors, insulin, complicated thing, insulin and TNF-alpha, so inflammatory conditions and insulin. Uh, and so despite having a, like a massive amount of energy on board, the brain doesn't, doesn't see it. It can't see the leptin anymore. And it's a little bit, the analogy is you're, you're sort of driving along the M1 in your car and you see that your petrol meter is on empty and you start, start, you start panicking, you want to fill up. And then you get to the petrol station and you start filling up and actually the tank's full. The problem is the petrol tank meter, uh, which is broken. And uh, this, uh, this is a great analogy for leptin resistance. So you, the body clearly has far too much energy on board to be you know, biologically suitable. It doesn't need that, but the hypothalamus can't read it. And in fact, the hypothalamus reads that there isn't much leptin around. It's a little bit like having that broken gas meter and panicking on the M1 and having to fill up. So you will find that you know, despite being massively obese, actually uh, obese people have a voracious appetite compared to people who are not obese. And they will avoid eating in public because, you know, it's embarrassing. They will quite commonly binge at home on, you know, uh, convenience and processed foods with high calories. So this is leptin resistance. This is the disease obesity that, you know, people don't really understand. Yeah. But it's quite, it's, it's quite, it's quite a, you know, it's, it's sad. It's a sad disease when you understand it. It's really sad because these people are stuck. It's clear they're obese. They can, everyone can see they're obese. No one really understands why they're obese, apart from people who have really looked into into this into weight regulation on a, a more scientific level, and they're almost like like lepers in society. You can see that there's something wrong with them, but it's sort of you know. Yeah, and no, I'm I'm really glad that we're starting off with this um, aspect of it because I think people need to understand that obesity is a disease where you have a plethora of different factors that impact someone's propensity towards suffering with it. And there are a number of complicating factors that make it far more uh, far more of an obstacle rather than just going on a low-calorie diet. Um, and I think when you, like you said, when you understand the factors that go into it, you actually begin to uh, empathize a lot more. And I think within the NHS, uh, as you've you know, bravely um, uh, sort of admitted at the start, we have obesity, we have prejudice against uh, obese patients. They're less likely to get treatment. They're less likely to have an empathic conversation with a primary care physician. They're less likely to have access to the the correct um, uh, sort of modalities of treatment that we have. So yeah, I, th I think it's really important to, to establish this quite early on. And until we understand weight regulation, you know, we're not actually really going to get a joined up you know, government policy about tackling the obesity yeah. crisis. So if we go back to, you know, what I was saying about metabolism and how, you know, some people metabolize and burn a lot of energy easily and some people are the opposite and they just maintain, you know, their energy. They don't burn much off at all. Um, and we go back to those patients I was seeing in clinic who have dieted their whole lives. And you think, well, you know, it's really difficult to fight against this, you know, dynamic metabolism. So the more you diet, the lower your metabolism gets. Um, and so the book, um, Why We Eat Too Much, which explains all, the, all, all these uh, areas, then goes on Got to... Right here. Yeah, <laughs> good. Uh, did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a really good read. New, uh, new, new, new uh, hypotheses and new, new areas of thought about obesity. So anyway, 
when you accept that actually people's metabolism is really, really variable and the body is in control of their weight, of your weight, you know, it will do what it wants because it's got this really powerful um, instrument to, to alter your metabolism and actually your appetite as well. Um, you wonder, you know, why are some people's weights set higher than others? And this is when we get onto this theory in the book, uh, which the book is based upon actually called the weight set point theory. Um, and that basically um, explains how each individual person will have their own weight setting. And we sort of all really know what our weight setting is. Um, I'm sure you've been similar weight for, for many years. Uh, and you can put a little bit of weight on on holiday and it will tend to come off you know, fairly simply, maybe a little bit of gym work or careful eating. Or you can be sick and your weight will come back up to that weight setting. It's not variable. It's just your individual weight setting. And people who have obesity have you know, their own individual weight setting. It just happens to be set too high. Um, and the book explains you know, what determines an individual's weight setting. And it's based basically on a combination of your genes. So what you've inherited from your family uh, and your environment. So the amount of stress you have, the amount of sleep and the amount of um, the, the quality of food that you eat. And all of these things affect your, your, your internal hormonal balance, the amount of cortisol, insulin, and we also explain a little bit about polyunsaturated fatty acids and how these can set your weight set point upwards or downwards. So you obviously you can't change your genetics, but you can change the external environment. And if you, the, 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 the basis of the book is if you ex understand the weight set point, you understand what you can change, you can actually permanently re reset your weight. Um, if you try and do that by dieting, yeah, you will, you will uh, over a short term period of time, um, you know, go away from your weight setting, but eventually your body will pull you back up to it. So that essentially explains why low calorie diets work, but then they don't work. So they, they can work for a short period of time. And this is something that I think every primary care physician has experienced or, you know, so anyone who's gone on a diet for a, an extended period of time, whether it be two or three months, they definitely lose the weight. They plateau, they fall off the wagon or they start eating, you know, normally or perhaps an extra 100 or 200 calories per day. And then they will go right back up to what was similar to their previous weight. Yeah, I mean, you can have this, I mean, very um, common story will be that a patient, a, 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 a person suffering with obesity will go on a 1,200 kilocalorie or even a 1,000 kilocalorie or even an mm. 800 kilocalorie diet mm. and they will lose this weight initially. But then when you look at the met metabolic rate and we're actually doing some research at UCLH to, you know, to actually confirm historical research that has shown this, the further you go along with a low calorie diet, the lower your metabolism go, your basal metabolism goes. So eventually your body will adapt to that diet and you will become, you know, you will be burning a similar amount to the amount you're taking in. Um, and actually the book sort of explains also that this works the other way. So most people overeat. And if we look at a population uh, overeating, um, they should be gaining a lot more weight than they are because we, we adapt mm. to overeating, we overmetabolize. So I think, the, I think the first chapter of the book actually does explain that we have this question of, you know, why as a population we're, we're 
eating 500 kilocalories more per day than mm. were mm. 30 years ago, but we're, I don't think we're going to the gym or exercising more than we did. And if you calculate that, if you plug that into that very simple energy in, energy out balance, then 500 kilocalories a day is 3,500 uh, a week, which is uh, half a kilogram. Uh, and then over a year, you're, you're putting on you know, 25 kilograms, four stone or so in weight as a population. So over that 20 years, I mean, everyone's going to be 200 kilo, 200, 200 kilocalories. But, you know, they're going to be massive, you know, 250 stone or whatever. Um, so it doesn't work that way. So as a population overeats, it starts to overmetabolize. And again, going into like actually really interesting medical stuff, the way that works is explained. So we think there is a lot of evidence there that actually the sympathetic nervous system uh, increases in tone. And this would explain why actually a population of overeats actually become hypertensive, they tend to have low-grade tachycardia um, and things like this. Uh, and again, if you undereat and you go on a diet, actually the, the mechanism of uh, the metabolism decreasing is you go into sort of parasympathetic overdrive. So this relaxation uh, mode of the body where you don't burn off much, your blood pressure goes much lower, uh, you get you get a low pulse rate. You know your temperature goes low. You feel profoundly mm. tired. This is what dieters mm. do. So your this metabolism is really really adaptable, and it will protect you against a diet and protect you against overeating. Yeah, to uh, to the point that you make in the book, I think you mentioned a couple of studies. One that sticks out is the Rockefeller study, looking at how an increase of weight actually increased their metabolism and it worked exactly the same way if they lost a similar amount of weight is that correct yeah so there were the rockefeller uh studies in new york that sort of forced their their lab students to overeat or or undereat and either gain 10 10 percent of their weight or decrease and lose 10 percent of the weight and then they actually quite accurately looked at their a sympathetic tone. And those studies were inspired by these like crazy studies, like the Vermont prison study, which is mentioned in the book, where they forced prisoners or encouraged prisoners to overeat by, by offering early parole. Um, and they found actually that some of the prisoners, just no matter how much they ate, couldn't put on any more weight. It, they'd reached saturation point, even with 10,000 kilocalories a day. Um, and then the other study looking at uh, conscientious objectors towards the end of the uh, Second World War in America, the uh, Minnesota, Minnesota Starvation Study, which starved these guys. Um, they, they wanted to be to help the war efforts, and they wanted the scientists wanted to know what happened when people were starved. And again, these guys didn't lose as much weight as predicted, and then put it all back on and more actually when they came off the study. So these studies were really fascinating historical studies that were repeated by Rockefeller. And we're now actually using um, the, the cardiopulmonary exercise machine adapted to look at metabolism um, at UCLH. Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, is that part of a, a research study that you're involved in at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it was on hold a little bit because of COVID, but uh, yeah, it's, it's restarting. So um, yeah, we're looking at, you know, the calculation of energy expenditure by actually basal, you know, oxygen, uh, consumption and carbon dioxide production uh, and you can put that into an equation and uh, get a daily uh, basal metabolism brilliant
We've talked a bit about metabolic adaptation according to um, energy intake, uh, a bit about leptin resistance and why that's important and how fat cells produce it. Um, one thing that you alluded to a little bit earlier is, is the role of insulin. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about insulin and its impact on um, uh, obesity. Yeah, so we know that uh, as doctors, you probably hear more than me, um, if we treat a patient with insulin, they will gain weight. Their weight setting will just increase. They may put on a stone or two stone or have to be really, really careful, whatever. And then if we withdraw that treatment, their weight setting will go back to what it was before insulin was given. So insulin is an, you know, an anab anabolic hormone that causes growth, usually of fat. Um, insulin can also be got not just by you know us prescribing it, but also via the diet. So any diet that has very high amounts of sugar and refined carbohydrates like wheat will produce much higher levels of insulin on average than a diet that's more natural. And that's the, the, the theory in the book is that that is one of the reasons that the weight setting of someone will go up because the quality of their diet is very Western diet quality. So sugar, refined carbohydrates, processed foods, and they're getting their own via that. It's almost like a proxy drug. That's how they're getting their insulin. And that's why their weight setting is going up. It's not really directly to do with the calories because if the calories were from normal food and they had a normal weight setting, they would just burn them off. But if you, if your food then gives you a high insulin level on average, your weight setting will go up just as if we injected someone with insulin for treatment. One of the re one of the ways of getting the weight your weight setting down one of the several ways is the first in fact the first uh, advice at the end of the book um, in order to try and control things is to, it's very simple advice that people know anyway but it actually sort of explains why it works so to try and avoid sugar and refined carbohydrates if possible unless you special occasion or whatever uh, try and you know get them away from the house and substitute them with more natural foods. And if that occurs, your weight setting will decrease slowly. So you'll lose a stone or two centered, depending on how much bread and sugar and, and wheat you, you eat beforehand. Um, now, a lot of people will think, well, hang, well, you know, I lost two stone because I gave up sugar and stuff. And they'll say, that's because I'm not eating as many calories. It's not that simple because the metabolism is, is in control. So your body's in control. It will take the signal that you know, there's a lot of insulin around. We want to put some weight on. This hormone is telling us to put weight on. It's blocking leptin slightly. So it's not as simple as, you know, because I gave up sugar, I'm taking less calories. It's because I gave up sugar, my insulin level on average is lower and my body wanted to be lighter. So it's a totally different concept of looking at the weight regulation to what we're sort of generally trained to, to think as yeah i mean this is still quite prevalent even now because i'm doing my master's in uh nutrition at university of surrey and a lot of i'm sure they have no idea of this these these theories yeah yeah i mean it's but the theories fit in totally yeah it's it's really interesting because um we we cover a range of different subject matters um and depending on the module that you're on, you'll get differences of of opinions. So lecturers who have spent decades of their professional careers looking at um, epidemiological data are 
are tied to the idea that everything is about calorie control, whether it comes from a carbohydrate or fat or whatever. And they they often quote NHANES data, which is one of the largest uh, captures of, of um, dietary patterns uh, in, in America. Um, but then we also have lectures from obesity specialists, uh, those who are looking from a neuroscientific uh, pers- uh, lens uh, at what drives obesity, i.e. the neurotransmitters, the hormones, as well as all the other sort of uh, triggers toward why someone is obese versus someone who isn't. And I'm I'm often left a little bit perplexed as to why there isn't a lot more joint up thinking with this. And that's why you... The thing is, I mean, the... The old-fashioned guys who say, look, there is the, this is the evidence. The calories in, calories out, when you measure them properly, will determine whether you lose weight or not. And, yeah, certainly if you shut someone in a, a closed room and, you, and you're really able to accurately measure the amount that they take in uh, through food and the amount that they metabolize through basal metabolism, exercise, and whatever, then it fits in. But the, the new uh, theories would agree that, you know, that's the ultimate energy in, energy out, the first law of thermodynamics. But actually, it's much more complicated than that, particularly the energy out, this this real variability of, of basal metabolic rate, the, the ability for your body to go cold and not burn anything or go hot and burn a load without you, you knowing and without you having any control of it. That's where the old-fashioned guys, you know, they it, it doesn't always fit in, you know, when someone diet so much and a lot of the studies that they will quote are short-term studies so they're looking at two or three weeks of dieting and actually it just fits in it takes a little bit longer for that metabolic adaptation the further you go away from your weight setting the more uh, profound the you know that this metabolic adaptation the, the colder you will get and the more weight you know you put on over your weight set point you know by massively overeating the more you will burn off to try and protect you from from too much weight gain so yeah, so the old guy, the old-fashioned way of thinking is there is evidence for it, but um, there's a lot more to it than that. I think from a very you know unscientific sort of anecdotal perspective, I my own, it's obvious that there's a lot more going on than just the pure calorie in, calorie out theory. And I think you know leptin resistance, insulin, as well as a whole host of other um, factors outside the control of a typical patient are definitely. Uh, coming into play um and we you know we do have some lecturers that talk about the weight set point um from an exercise and performance uh, perspective as well I-, I wonder what you're i mean the other thing the interesting thing about like the weight set point um you talked about exercise and performance which we mentioned in the book as well so um obviously if you do a lot of uh, active exercise uh you're going to burn some calories it takes quite a lot of exercise to burn a lot as you know um And clearly exercise works because gyms are popular and people lose weight when they go to the gym or actually most people are controlling their weight. They would would rebound upwards if they didn't go to the gym two or three times a week. Um, But the book explains that it's, again, not that simple of just counting those, you know, going for a 10K run and counting those six or seven kilocalories um, that you've taken in because, as you know very well, as soon as you use up those six or seven hundred kilocalories you're going to get a voracious appetite and you're going to take it in that evening usually in the juice bar in the in the gym uh, or whatever but the ways the way that exercise works i think is actually by improving the sensitivity of insulin so you don't need as much insulin we know that exercise is fantastic for insulin function 
and also decreasing the amount of cortisol, the stress hormone you have. Again, cortisol is mentioned in the book as a big determinant of your weight setting. So I think exercise works indirectly via improving insulin and decreasing cortisol, and probably a lot of other things that we don't understand, but not directly by, yeah, I burn off 600 kilocalories a day. Um, over a year, I'm gonna lose you know, four stone in weight. Uh, it's not that simple. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think there's a lot more we need to learn about um, the impact of exercise, um, the impact on the sympathetic nervous system or the autonomic nervous system, as well as um, mitochondrial uh, function as well. And that, uh, yeah. So I mitochondrial know- function is fantastic. Uh, and this, this whole area, again, mentioned in the book of um, uh, uncoupling. So um, yeah. uncoupling of our, our, our energy molecule, ATP, so that it's not used for energy, it's actually just burnt off seamlessly. And this is another area, this this thing called, I think, adaptive thermogenesis, where actually you just burn off that extra energy by by producing heat rather than um, rather than energy. And there's there is some evidence from you know mice who keep themselves hot by by using this method via brown adipose tissue, um, and there is increasing evidence that in humans we have this uh, system of uh, uncoupling of our our energy systems in our muscles. And some of the newer research in uh, some some of the obesity conferences that I go to is really starting to uncover that. So it's it's really fascinating, actually. Yeah, no, I find this whole area absolutely fascinating. And I wonder if you could speak on the different types of exercise that you think might be more um, impactful on... um, on on weight set point um, through the lens of what we we're just talking about. So the final part of the book, I mean, I didn't actually want to write any, I didn't want to write a book on, you know, what to do. I just wanted to write a book on, you know, what's what's happened yeah. and how the body works. But Penguin, the publishers say, look, we, people are going to want to know what to do. Yeah. So I had to sort of think, oh God, you know. Um, so there are a number of steps in the end of the book about what I think people should do. Um, and as far as activity is concerned, the main thing, all of the, all of the steps should be long-term changes. They should become your new life. Because if they're short-term, then as soon as you go back to what you were doing before your weight setting, will go back to what it was before. So all the steps change slowly your weight set point down. And as far as activity and exercise is concerned, the main thing is it's got to be something you actually enjoy and look forward to. That is the actual crucial one. Um, so that might be that you like going to the gym, but you might not like going to the gym. Most people probably don't, you know. Uh, my, some people might like yoga, which I think is a fantastic exercise. Some people might be more into team sports, you know, tennis, badminton, whatever. Uh, but it's got to be whatever you will enjoy and carry on doing and look forward to. You know? And I think, you know, I, w- I advise my patients to do, you know, half an hour of exercise that's going to make you sweat enough to need a shower uh you know three or four times a week if you can um and also to keep some muscle tone so some of that exercise not just aerobic exercise but actually to keep some muscle tone because as we were alluding to before i think you know muscle is really important in um this metabolic adaptation being able to burn off energy um so yeah something you enjoy three or four times a week for at least half an hour to make you sweat enough and uh, also to, to, to maintain some muscle tone. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about muscle um, tone in particular because I, I think of like the biggest sinks of glucose, which is going to be 
your insulin stimulating um, product uh, and the biggest things are your liver and your muscles. And so if you can impact your muscle tone and the degree to which you can push glucose into those cells, then you're going to have less of an insulinotropic effect. So it's it's really important. And I see this, like I, I, I do a clinic in the UAE. I've been doing one for like many years now. Uh, and the female population of the UAE is over over 50% of them now are, are clinically obese, the local population. Oh, wow. And it's, it's, it's almost like, a, well, it is a... Um, Females, local female Emiratis are encouraged not to do much activity or exercise. It's not seen as something that they should be doing. They, they, they you know, traditionally should be, you know, relaxing at home, um, you know, socialising, maybe a bit of uh, activity, but again, just going to the mall or whatever. So traditionally, they certainly haven't been um, encouraged or it's not been socially acceptable for them to go to the gym or go jogging or whatever. So you see a lot of these women will have sarcopenia. So they will have, because they've been like sedentary for, for years and decades, they will start to have muscle wasting. And I think this is one of the reasons why they have such a massively high um, rate of obesity amongst that sort of subpopulation, female Emiratis. Um, you're getting a shrinkage of the muscles, which is really, really important in, in this metabolic adaptation. Not only that, but obviously the diet is very high in sugar and uh, refined carbohydrates, so they're getting a big dose of insulin, which they can't deal with. Would you say females in general are more at risk of um, uh, obesity in, in, a, in an environment where refined carbohydrates and sugar uh, are rife? As far as patients who come to bariatric clinic, 80% are female, actually. But I just think that's something, you know, maybe to do with a difference in the way men and women look after themselves. Women, men will come much later when they're, you know, they've had serious complications where women tend to come in earlier. I don't think there's any major difference between male and female obesity in the UK, but we see much more female patients. And certainly, uh, as you know, male obesity tends to be more dangerous than female obesity because we have this more central distribution, the sort of pot belly distribution of obesity, which is really dangerous for diabetes and cardiovascular disease, whereas women tend to have a lot of the um, fat will, will uh, will accumulate on their hips and, and maybe breasts and, and other places underneath the skin, whereas the men will have it, you know, deep around their organs of their abdomen. Um, so it's much more dangerous for men, but they don't tend to come as early. And and I wanted to ask you in terms of, um, I mean, you, your book is trying to put yourself out of a job, right? Uh, when it comes to bariatric surgery. The thing is, it would be like fantastic if people actually took this message that I'm saying, I think that, you know, there is a solution but actually we need to first understand weight regulation and then actually put in some pretty draconian measures actually on food, which I don't think will ever be done because the lobbyists in, in, in government and controlling what happens are too powerful. So it's not going to happen, but we can get the message out there. Well, I think it's even from, I, I agree with the lobbying perspective as well, but I think it's also within um, certain communities online that the, the very... Uh, nomenclature around obesity is seen as uh, un-PC or it's seen as blaming or it's seen as, you know, uh, incompassionate, uh, which I find quite, um, it's it's very hard to understand that because I, th I think you have to think about this through the lens of, of science as, as a disease and yes, offer compassion, but we have to give people reasonable tools to look after themselves as well. And that, that requires an open, honest conversation, which you've started in your book. 
It also requires an understanding. So if we keep on telling people to starve themselves and count calories and you know go to the gym all the time without sort of an understanding of it's not the calories, it's the quality of the food that you're eating, people are going to get really confused. And as you know, there's hundreds of diet books out there and they will work short term, but in the long term, um, the next diet book will be along in you know six months' time, some new diet. Yeah, and I think... Um... Another thing that, uh, again, is perplexing, whilst you're trying to get everyone to think about their diet in a different way, in a more holistic manner, in a combination with exercise and all the other lifestyle features that you, you talk about in the, the end of the book, um, what about the role of poverty? Because I think people see this information as privileged, as unappreciative of people's um, backgrounds and their, uh, their environments. How do we overcome that hurdle? So I think, I mean, obviously we need to accept the message that it's not purely calories in, calories out. It's actually the quality of the food. That needs to be accepted firstly by doctors and then by governments. And then if a government really want to tackle the problem, they need to get the message out there to people. Um, and then we need to address this um, very real um, uh, thing that people you know, experience is that, you know, processed food is cheaper for them then they will say to me well why would i want to go and start cooking and uh buying you know steaks and fish and things like that when they can get 20 chicken nuggets for, for like 99p or whatever from iceland um so we need to address the fact that processed you know unhealthy foods laden with sugars and vegetable oils which we'll go go on to later um are too cheap and a government, uh, an appropriate government response should be to actually really tax these foods quite high and use that money to subsidize and make healthy food and natural foods. We're talking, you know, things that would come straight from the farm. So vegetables, meat and fish and dairy products, that's natural food. You don't really need a supermarket. So subsidize these foods, but also like actually pour that money from the taxes into an education campaign and get people cooking, you know, um, this fantastic, relaxing thing that we can do with food, but has gone from our society because we sort of lost our food culture. And people won't cook if they don't know how to cook, you know, and they don't have the instruments. But if we started to try and change people's behavior with an appropriate, um, uh, you know, education campaign combined with, you know, just encouraging people this food is really really cheap you can cook it this way this way this way it's trendy to cook it you know um we know from covid that people's behavior can be massively changed in this sort of dy dystopian uh state that we're in at the moment it's actually quite simple to totally control the obesity crisis by you don't have to do such a dramatic thing but you can certainly change people's behavior and people are happy to do these things if they understand but the problem is that the big lobbyists will, you know, muddy the research waters and whatever, and then the governments will get the government ministers will get confused, and it will never happen. But that would be my sort of utopian um, solution to the problem. Yeah, you, you mentioned COVID there, and and I I think there's a lot of um, there's loads of news articles, uh, a lot of papers looking at the disproportionate effect of COVID on um, obese patients. Can you speak to to why that might be um, mechanistically um, and, and and whether this is true as well? Because there's a lot of people arguing that that's not true. 
Yeah, I think mechanistically it is true. Um, and it's all to do with this uh, receptor that the coronavirus attacks. So uh, the ACE2 receptor, which I mean, the initial um, understanding was is that we have a lot of these receptors in our lungs and, you know, coronavirus attacks the lungs. And that's why people get pneumonia and die. But actually, more newer research has suggested that this, uh, the ACE receptor that um, COVID attacks is in the blood vessels, the endothelium as well. And that causes blood clotting and uh, oxidative stress. So we know that uh, ACE2 converts, if you go back to your sort of uh, you know, first year of medical school again, I think it converts angiotensin to angiotensin 17 and sorry, angiotensinogen to angiotensin 17, I think. Now, angiotensinogen causes inflammatory and oxidative stress. So it causes the body to want to clot uh, and, you know, the body to become sick. Whereas what the ACE inhibitor converts this enzyme to, enzyme to stops that process. So when, it, when it's blocked, you're going to get this sudden uh, oxidative stress. Now, we know the Western diet also causes oxidative stress. So people with obesity have got more of the ACE2 receptor to try and almost create a dam against the oxidative stress of uh, processed foods. And when you suddenly block a lot more of these things via a coronavirus infection, suddenly they, it's almost like a dam breaking. They will get much more oxidative stress than people of normal weight and suddenly they'll become very, very sick which is why there is a you know, definite biological difference in how people who are obese react to coronavirus compared to those who are non-obese. Yeah, and it's certainly something that I, I've heard um, anecdotally from ITU departments across. So what you're essentially saying is, you know... I mean, this is also why the coronavirus has affected, you know, West, Western Europe terribly. We've been the worst affected in Europe because we are the fattest in Europe and America's even parts of America are even worse affected than us because it's directly linked to you know obesity and this is also why I know we have increasing rates of coronavirus in in India but actually probably compared to their population is pretty low and when you look at the diet of you know your rural Indian people it's actually really really healthy they don't tend to suffer with obesity unless they move to the city and uh, they are naturally protected. When you look at a place like Brazil, which is now getting a bit of a problem, there's always media hype, but they've got a bit of a problem, but Brazil actually has a bit of a problem with obesity as well. So it all sort of fits in. Yeah, there's certainly like confounding factors, but I, I think purely from, from what you're saying, obese people are more likely to have ACE2 um, receptors that are highly expressed. So if you're gonna have the same amount of viral load that they're exposed to, they're gonna have a worse response to that in comparison to someone who doesn't have as many ACE2 receptors. So that seems plausible from that and, and certainly borne out by some of the statistics that we've seen yeah. as well. Um, I sort of hope that, you know, that we hear rumors that the government are gonna really take obesity seriously because you know, if we have uh, you know mutation of coronavirus in the next five, 10, 20 years or whatever, we want to be more protected as a as a population. But my my worry is that you know they will go back to calorie counting. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We're hardwired to amnesia, I find. So um, we'll see in six months or so. Um, I I think perhaps I should have started off the podcast with this, but perhaps uh, we could talk a little bit about the history of like how we got here in the first place. Um, 
I, I know a lot of people have heard about the the history of Ansel Keys and Yudkin and who won that war, etc. Uh, but perhaps uh, we, we could double click on some of the uh, the impact of said research on our food environment and and what you feel we could be focusing a bit more attention on um, and what the government should be instead of calorie counting. Yeah, so the book, one of the chapters of the book, uh, I think it's called The Heart of the Matter, um, is really looks at the, the historical narrative of saturated fat and how we got to this current situation where the population think um, actually you shouldn't have too much red meats, you shouldn't have too much natural you know, saturated fat, cheese or eggs. It just It's sort of ingrained in our subconscious, even though you'll get the odd newspaper article that you know suggests that actually the scientists have had it wrong for ages. It's ingrained, it's deeply ingrained that, you know, you shouldn't have steak every day. You know, um, for most people, they'll think, actually, that's going to fur up your arteries and you're going to have a heart attack early. So this is like ingrained in people's way of thinking. And because of this, we're, we don't have as much saturated fat in our diet as we used to. And uh, we replace it with other things such as vegetable oils, which we can come on and talk about those and the effects those have had on, on obesity in the population. But the historical context of the reason that we feel this way about fat now is that in the um, early 60s, there was this big debate about what was causing this uh, increase in prevalence of heart disease. And there was a debate between whether it was for us eating too much sugar or whether we were eating too much fat. And um, Ansel Keys was quite a famous American scientist who um, was actually sort of in within a group of scientists who were, you know, sort of paid by the sugar lobby uh, to push their narrative that saturated fat causes heart disease. Um, whereas John Yudkin, who was a UK, very well respected UK scientist, had published a book which actually, you know, exposed sugar as a real culprit of heart disease. So there's the, the, the book goes through the history of, uh, I think the, the, the most famous scientific paper was the seven countries study, uh, which done by Ansel Keys, which looked at the amount of fat, saturated fat that each population, particular countries he looked at, um, ate, and then compared it with their level of heart disease. And he plotted them on a graph and it looked perfect. So the ones, the countries with the lowest rate of saturated fat intake had the lowest rate of heart disease and the ones with the highest had the highest rate. So this was like a really seminal paper that actually the world woke up and he said, this is the proof, this is the proof. The, the, the sugar, the guys who say sugar is causing heart disease, it's all wrong, you know, and he was sort of exonerated. But then actually a few years later, people looked at you know, the research and realized that he looked at 22 countries. And if you plotted all those countries, uh, fat intake and heart disease, uh, it would have looked like there was no correlation, but he just took the seven countries that happened to fit into the into the curve. Um, but and so uh, more contemporaneously, that's been you know um, seen to be almost almost research fraud by admission by by omission. So he left out a lot of data points um, to prove his to prove the point that he thought you know was appropriate. Uh, and that was just the start of, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, constant evidence that 
saturated fat or a constant narrative that saturated fat causes heart disease. And actually the first, the first sort of, uh, first real historical research linking cholesterol and heart disease looked at, you know, this condition that we know some people have family high cholesterol, you know, a, a whole family will you know, genetically have very high cholesterol levels called familial hypercholesterolemia which affects one in 500 people and it's terrible because you tend to then start to you know, get real problems with heart disease in your 40s. Mm -hmm. And so the historical research looked at that, you know, there is a link between cholesterol and heart disease in this one in 500 people. But then they looked at the fact that if people uh, had slightly high cholesterol and you change their diet, the diet, their, their cholesterol will go down. And then they put the two together to say that actually, if you change your diet, your risk of heart disease will go down. But they didn't really link up. It's like one condition is a rare genetic condition linking cholesterol, high cholesterol, very high cholesterol in your blood to heart disease. Mm. And another is um, these studies showing that changing your, your, your the type of food you eat can slightly adapt your cholesterol up and down. So all of this research was, has now been seen to be, have been totally misinterpreted, but it's gone too far. It's ingrained in our population's brains, Western population's brains, that saturated fat causes heart disease. A great thing recently, I think about a month ago, was finally the American Cardiology Association, who have been a big proponent of the previous research and have been like avoiding change, have now said saturated fat is okay. They've actually now come back. But curiously, none of the press covered it. It's like, this is like a massive step for the American Cardiology Association to, to admit that they've been wrong for the last 30 years. Um, so, but I did find it quite curious that it wasn't in the Daily Mail or any of the papers actually. So anyway, because of that, um, the, the sort of research linking cholesterol and saturated fat with heart disease, the Americans, I think in um, late 70s or 1980, came up with the first you know, guidance on what people should be eating. And they basically warned people not to eat too much saturated fat, but to have more grains. And they wanted people to have you know, whole grains, uh, but actually transpires most people have like refined grains. So we went away from saturated fat and towards sugar, basically refined carbohydrates and sugar. And at that time, that's when you know, the population obesity level was running along about 10%. Just as that dietary change came in, it started to go up because people were having more refined carbohydrates, more sugar, the population's insulin level was going up and the weight set point of the population was slowly going up. So it was interesting, really interesting look at that historical perspective, at how you know, scientists who are trying to do good, you know, I'm sure Ansel Keys was trying to, you know, prove something that he really thought was was true. Uh, apparently, he'd spent a sabbatical in the UK and seen, you know, our fish and chip habits, and thought that was the reason we had heart disease. Actually, we had a high, sky high smoking rate at the time, uh, but he thought he was doing the right thing. But actually, uh, sometimes science can actually get everything wrong and rebound and cause a third of the population to become obese. Yeah, I think I think there's a, there's a lot of parallels between the way we look at obesity and the way we look at heart disease. Um, that there are multiple different parameters of what will determine one's risk, um, whether it be age, genetics, as well as uh, diet. And um, 
you know, even the nomenclature that we use around food to try and educate our population, most people, when they think of saturated fat, they think of, you know, the burger with the bun uh, or a pizza, you know, that's used some god-awful horrible cheese and uh, whatever meat products they put on it. Um, whereas the fats, I think, that you're alluding to are the ones that you find in their most wholesome natural forms, um, whether it be from oily fish or from nuts or seeds or whatever. Um, but you've mentioned polyunsaturated fats a couple of times, uh, in particular the, the, the cotton seed oil and um, uh, sunflower or safflower and that kind of, those, those kind of products. Yeah, so, so as the sort of dietary sort of recommendations in America at first and then they were copied by the Europe and the UK came into effect in the 1980s and have been in effect ever since really. Um, that's the, 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 the food scientists sort of guidebook to the population of what you should eat to keep healthy and that has basically said try and avoid natural saturated fats like, you know, a juicy fatty steak, uh, natural cheese, eggs, full fat, full fat milk, you know, we, it's like terrible, we can't have full, full, full fat milk. Um, because people are, uh, don't want to buy that as much or eat that as much because they're scared of heart disease, they've gone on to other foods and the food processors have realized that they can put a lot of vegetable oil type things into foods um, to, you know, replace things people used to cook with, butter and lard and things like that. So uh, vegetable oils are polyunsaturated fats. So we have, if you want to sort of go back as a sort of brief um, sort of reminder of what types of fats we have. So we have saturated fats, which basically have, you know, they're, 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 basically, I won't go into it. It's the, all right, yeah, I'm good to go <laughs> Chemistry of it, but they're, um, they're things like cheese and, you know, natural, uh, uh, if you put them in the fridge, they're solid, basically. So it's natural saturated fats. Then we have polyunsaturated fatty fats, which are things like vegetable oils um, and, um, you know, uh, like you said, cotton oil, uh, sunflower oil, et cetera, et cetera, canola oil. Um, and then you have the third type of fat, which is monounsaturated fats, which are like olive oil. And polyunsaturated fatty acids are sort of fairly unnatural, actually, and they have to be produced in a refinery, almost like a petrol refinery. So they have to, things like cotton seeds or sunflower seeds or whatever, totally unnatural human foods, um, have to be highly refined into an oil through very, very many processes to become safe in the short term for human consumption. Um, but these fats have massively high levels of uh, omega-6, which causes a lot of inflammation and has the effect eventually of increasing someone's weight set point via this you know, disparity between, well, basically an overdose of omega-6 fatty acid. So the, so the historical dietary guidelines changed the way we eat. A lot more vegetable oil type foods were, were, in, were incorporated into our diet. You know, with the proviso from food scientists that they're heart healthy, you know, people were saying, oh yeah, it's okay, vegetable oil is fine, fantastic, really healthy food. Um, but actually it transpires that they uh, have a, you know, a really adverse metabolic effect on their inflammatory systems and also on our weight setting, which is sort of explained in, in the book. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting about the the weight set point. I didn't appreciate with omega six foods, and it's something I need to to look into a bit more. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, this has been fascinating to to hear about it from straight from someone who deals with uh, bariatric patients on a daily basis uh, and the the sort of history of of how we got here. If you could perhaps uh, sum up with three things that you think uh, are the most important or the most uh, relevant for people who are suffering from obesity or um, for those who are just interested in the subject matter, what, what were the three things that you would say? Yeah. Three things to do to, to decrease yeah. your weight set point. So the first would be uh, really important to decrease your sugar and refined carbohydrates. So that's going to decrease your insulin level and your weight will just follow. You don't have to count calories. So try and avoid sweets, confectionery, biscuits, chocolates, all the normal things we know, but also actually fruit juices as well. Um, and try and give up wheat. I would try and give up wheat for a while. Um, so this would be bread, again, cakes, biscuits, um, and pasta. So if you can give up sugar and wheat without going on a diet, depending on how big you are, depending on how much weight you'll lose. You may lose a stone if you're sort of just struggling a bit, but that could be the only thing you need to do, just actually change your diet to give up those two things. Um, the second thing would be, you know, to actually do an exercise that you enjoy. Um, and the final thing, I mean, in the book, there's five sort of factors that we look at, but the final thing would be then to look at, once you've given up sugar and fine carbohydrates and you're doing a bit of activity, but actually be, if you want to lose even more weight, actually look at the amount, the total amount of sugar. So we call it the glycemic load in the book, uh, in your diet. Again, the book has got an index of all the foods and how much sugar is in them. Um, but even things like celery and potatoes, whatever, how much sugar is in those. And if you can go onto a sort of lowish carb diet without going ketogenic, you'll lose even more weight because your, your insulin will go down even lower. I think, you know, these simple lifestyle changes that, that are, can benefit someone, can actually improve your quality of life, but also have this uh, positive effect on your weight setting goes down. This means you're not fighting your weight. The weight is just naturally lower. That's the yeah. whole concept of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a fabulous book. Uh, I think a lot of people can learn a lot of things from it, um, as well as uh, a bit about bariatric surgery as well, linked to some of your um, your, your website materials. Um, one thing I would say is uh, you're also involved in a BBC program, right? I, I don't think I caught uh, the BBC program, but it's about access to bariatric surgery and, and how it's quite limited in the NHS. What, what are your opinions on? Yeah, that was a pro that was a documentary a couple of years ago by um, my colleague, mainly my colleague Rachel Batterham, Professor Batterham, who's a physician at UCLH, um, and she was basically looking at the you know the the inequality in um, access to bariatric surgery services throughout the UK and, you know, really driven by a lot of prejudice and misunderstanding of obesity. So yeah, it was quite a, a interesting um, documentary. Yeah. And do, do you think that's still rife at the moment? And, and the, the, the challenge of obesity is access to bariatric surgery, or do you think it really has to be rooted in the lifestyle, education and the food environment that we should change? 
So, I mean, again, I don't want to put myself out of a job, but yeah, we can. I think the government are actually going to expand bariatric services. So I've got a few junior colleagues that are going to be looking for jobs soon. So it's fantastic news for them. And it is really good surgery. It's like, it's really relatively safe, fast recovery and life-changing. It's not too bad on your quality of life afterwards, but we can't do that on everyone. And we're almost like uh, firefighters. It's like, but there's fires coming up all over the, you know, you've got to, as a firefighter, you've got to look at what's causing the fires in the first place. You can't just employ more and more firefighters. So the crucial part is to change, you know, the government under, understanding of obesity and weight regulation and change the food environment totally. That's the, that's the only thing that's going to get rid of the obesity crisis. You can't, you know, encourage people to start counting calories when they don't understand what what the type of food does to their hormones you know their insulin their cortisol whatever um, and it's actually the, the i mean the answers are really easy if you cook vegetables meat fish and dairy products and it's all home prepared um, and you don't have to go to the supermarket you just go to the fishmongers butchers and greengrocers if you cook that food and eat that food you'll lose a load of weight and that's basically the end message of the book and what the government advice should be. Brilliant, yeah. I mean, my my books are not diet books and the number of anecdotes I get of people saying, I followed your recipes for the last month or so and I've lost so much weight. I'm like, I, I, that wasn't even my intention. It was just because it's real food, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's real food, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and a lot of this stuff in uh, supermarkets is disguised as real food, but it's not real food. Real food comes from the farm, you know, you don't need an intermediary intermediary of the supermarket there. The supermarket has got real food, but it's actually a real tempter to go into the center of the supermarket where all that tasty stuff is. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much uh, for your time. We'll definitely have to do this again. I'm sure we're going to get loads of questions. So we could even do like an uh, an, an AMA or something whilst we cook some food. Yeah, when the kitchen's open, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. Remember, you can check out the book uh, by looking at thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. You'll find the podcast show notes there. Um, Just to round up some of the tips that uh, Andrew was talking about, eat whole foods, reduce sugar, refined uh, products like um, carbohydrates, juices, uh, something that I steer clear of as well because it can spike your blood sugar level as much as a Snickers bar um, exercise, sleep and look at the glycemic load of, of foods remember this for informational purposes only I would highly recommend if you did need uh, some help with your diet uh, or even uh, early treatment speak to your GP speak to your registered nutrition practitioner uh, who can guide you a bit more and give you some help during this because this is a very hard journey for a lot of people um, and something that really needs to be recognized as very challenging particularly when you understand the mechanisms that may be against us and and this is this comes from our evolutionary past as well um, and the changing food landscape so I really hope you enjoyed the episode I'm sure I'm going to be doing more episodes just like this on this topic because I get asked about it a lot um, and I hope uh, you stay well and I'll see you here next week 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.